speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This morning we're going to begin a voyage of biblical discovery through the amazing book of Acts. And we're going to look at the first three verses of that book and move beyond that to talk about some of the behind the scenes context of the book. Uh, And the point is, if we don't place things in their proper context, and this applies to all areas of life, but especially reading scripture, if we don't place things in their proper context, there's a real good chance we're going to misinterpret uh, what they're all about. And to illustrate, let me tell a story that happened recently that I think proves that a captain of a cruise ship uh, didn't quite put what he was seeing in, in proper context. This, uh, this cruise ship was touring the Eastern Caribbean and out into the Atlantic. And one afternoon from the observation deck, the captain was standing there and there were several hundred passengers. Everybody on that ship could see just a few hundred yards off the bow a tiny, tiny island. And on that tiny island, everybody on the ship could clearly see a thin, emaciated, malnourished man with a long beard jumping up and down, frantically waving his hands. And although nobody could make out what he was saying, he was obviously shouting something at the ship. Now one of the passengers looked at the captain and said, who is that? And the captain said, I don't know. But I do know, every single time we pass by, he goes nuts. Now see, the point is, that guy wanted to be rescued. But the captain didn't put it in context, okay? Now, thinking about context, and you've got to see this for it to make sense. So we're going to make a momentary change in the scenery here. Okay, what does this mean? Guy's at work, on the phone, and he's calling his wife. And he says, my boss promoted me to plant manager. What does that probably mean? That's good news? Got a big promotion. He's in charge. He's running the operation. Well, that's not a fair question. What does it mean? Because you don't know the whole context. Here's the rest of the context. My boss promoted me to plant manager. I get to water his fern while he's out of town. He's now going to manage the boss's plant. I don't mind explaining the jokes. Okay. So we're going to try to put the book of Acts in context this morning so we can better understand it, more accurately understand it. Okay? Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, we approach this amazing book that the Spirit inspired supernaturally, that you've supernormally preserved, that some people have worked really hard to translate into English because. Most of us can't make uh, sense of Koine Greek, and it's your word written, and you want to speak to us individually through your written word uh, today and every day. So we thank you for what we have in this book. I pray that as we deal with some of these introductory concepts that all of us would more appreciate it, what we've got here, and be able to understand it better so that we could allow you to transform us from the inside out uh, to the image of Christ, to draw us closer to yourself by your, your good grace. Uh, we pray, Father, in addition to what we're doing here and throughout the building this morning, we pray for your church at large throughout Duncan and the world uh, that transcends colors and cultures and countries because of the grace of, of uh, your, your plan and purpose and the purpose and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray for our active military Um, for firefighters and for peace officers and the way they serve and protect us. And we pray especially for those who are believers in Jesus Christ and their families during this very difficult and dangerous period of history, uh, which we know ultimately you do control. So we gather here in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this opportunity to invest some time thinking uh, profoundly, hopefully, through your word, and we pray you be glorified in the process and the product of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, today I want to ask and answer some basic, behind-the-scenes kind of contextual questions about the book of Acts, namely, what is the book of Acts? It's a good place to start. Who wrote the book of Acts? 
Why was the book written in the first place? When was the book written? And then a final question, how can we get a good sense for 28 whole chapters? But let's start by thinking about what is the book of Acts. I would say book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. The titles vary on some of the manuscripts that we copy, and it wasn't inspired. The title was added later. Uh, is an inspired work, written work. Uh, and it is kind of the title you see on most of the Greek manuscripts is the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, Fran, the Acts, the Acts, not some, but the Acts of the Apostles. Sounds like all of them. But it would really be better labeled, and the label is not inspired, uh, certain acts of certain apostles. Because really when you analyze the book of Acts, it's really focusing on Peter and Paul. And so this is an inspired book uh, that traces certain key aspects of the first century church with a special emphasis shall be on the apostles Peter and Paul. Now, the inspiration of Scripture is something we should never take for granted, and I probably don't talk about often enough, Ken, but inspiration is the concept that God the Holy Spirit, in a unique way that He only did 66 times in history, superintended the human authors of Scripture, in this case the book of Acts, such that they composed and recorded without any error the exact message God desired as timeless Scripture in the words of the original manuscript they were writing. We don't have the original manuscript, but we have thousands of Greek copies that allow us with a 99% certitude reassemble the wording of the original, and you've got an English translation in your Bible or on your phone or wherever you have you carry it. It doesn't really matter. I'm uh, all for technology. You know, uh, Everybody used scrolls all over the world until about 100 A.D., right after John wrote Revelation. One of the last things written on a scroll that was important was the book of Revelation. And right around 100 A.D., the Codex, the early book, came into, into uh, being, was invented. And I can just imagine the generation, the older generation, seeing that book said, why are you kids sitting around reading those books? You need to be reading it out of a scroll. You know, no matter what the technology is, it's neutral. Antichrist will have state-of-the-art everything, which doesn't mean phones are evil. Phones are neutral, okay? You can talk to your wife and tell her how much you love her, hopefully, hoping she'll respect you, right? <laughs> or you can call your girlfriend, and if your wife finds out, you're in big trouble. I mean, you know, you can use it for good or for evil. Uh, but... Uh, Scripture is timeless, whether it's on your phone or in a book or in a scroll or however you access it. And the book of Acts is one of 66 biblical books, one of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, you guys know that the New Testament breaks down into 521 and 1. The first five books are narrative books. They're holy history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are focusing on the ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts says, you know what Jesus began to do during his ministry. Here's what Jesus continues to do as he builds his church, and he promised he'd do that, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. So that's the first five books in your New Testament. We're going to be looking at the fifth one. Romans through Jude, uh, those, those books, those 21 books, are called epistles. They're just holy letters. They're letters written by apostles and those close to apostles to churches for the most part. Uh, the first 13 of those, Romans through Philemon, are the Pauline, the epistles written by Paul. Now, actually, by convention, we refer to the New Testament letters written by Paul based on the addressee. Who did Paul write? Uh, who was Paul writing when he wrote the, wrote the book of Romans, the Christians in Rome? Who was Paul writing to when he wrote 2 Thessalonians? Was well, second means it's the second of two inspired letters he wrote to the Thessalonian Christians in northern Greece. The other epistles, notice Lindley, when you get to Philemon, that's the last one Paul wrote, uh, Hebrews through Jude. Now Hebrews is kind of a special category, but let's say James through Jude, those are also letters, and they're labeled based on who wrote them, who the human author was. So uh, James was written by James, right? Second John was the second of three inspired letters that the Apostle John wrote. Second John is the second of three. Uh, I think the reason they did that was because you don't want to have first Paul, second Paul, 13th Paul. It would just be too confusing. 
So, and all the labels uh, are, are, are conventions. You look at the manuscripts and what they're saying about uh, what happens in Acts 1 are essentially all the same, but the labels about, across the top of the book, each book, will vary a little bit. It's, John didn't put the gospel according to John and then start writing John. Uh, Luke didn't put the Acts of the Apostles and then start writing. He just started writing the first account I composed, etc., like that. So we're looking at New Testament Scripture. Now here's, here's an interesting factor. When you're in biblical narrative literature, and in the case of the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. In the case of the Old Testament, it's going to be uh, Genesis through Esther, right? But when you're, when you're looking at, at holy history, inspired history, you've got to remember that not everything that is described in narrative literature is being prescribed, okay? I'll, I'll jump to my, my trump card. Uh, we read about Abraham having multiple wives. We read about David having a whole lot of wives. We read about Solomon having a whole lot of wives, okay? Um, lots of wives are biblical. They're in the Bible. But I would insist to you that, in fact, polygamy is not taught by the Bible. It's described as a bad idea that certain rich cats and certain believers even indulged in. But just because something's described in a narrative doesn't necessarily mean it's prescribed. How do you know the difference? I'm going to give you a test case on this. Look at Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 44. Uh, obviously, we start in Jerusalem because uh, the book of Acts starts exactly where the Gospel of Luke stopped. Luke and Acts are actually two volumes, a two-volume set. They're twins. And... Um, the Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's where Acts begins. Having uh, the death and the resurrection having taken place starts with the ascension of Christ. So the first couple of chapters are focusing on the city where these events took place, Jerusalem and the early church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 2.44, as we talk about the progress of the earliest church, which uh, Von... Um, the first church, of course, in Jerusalem was Jerusalem Bible Fellowship, right? We all know that. Uh, not necessarily funny, but, you know, just thought-provoking there. Um, look at uh, verse 44. Now, in the first generation infant stages of Jerusalem Bible Fellowship, all those who had believed were together. They had a connection in the church and had all things in common. What does that mean? We look at chapter 4. That means is they had one common pot, and everybody, put, everybody was basically putting all their stuff into one bank account, and everybody else was writing checks on it, right? That's what they were doing in the first, very first church. It's biblical in the sense it's there. It's in the Bible. But let's talk about that for a minute and see if we have to do that uh, after church today. So this is get exciting. Get excited here. Uh, yeah. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who had believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property with them. And if you read the rest of the paragraph, they're all putting everything they've got into one pot, one bank account, and everybody's writing checks on that bank account. Now, some people say that's early socialism, and some people that don't want to go to conventional churches, want to house churches, uh, want to say that that's the way you do church. But here's the problem. You guys know, just because something is described in narrative literature doesn't necessarily mean it's prescribed. How do you know if it's prescribed? I would say you do this. First, you look for a pattern in the narrative book you're studying, okay? We got 28 chapters, Amanda. Uh, the very first church out of the box does this in the infant days of that church. Do any other churches in Acts do that? correct answer is no, they don't. And it's obvious from the description that that's not happening anyplace else. Okay. Uh, number two, I think the second thing you do is what are, where else do we learn about other than the book of Acts? Where do we learn about the dynamics of churches in the New Testament? I'd say the epistles, right? In the epistles, is there any evidence that those churches are routinely having one big pot and one big bank account, everybody living off of that? No. Okay? In fact, Paul has to deal with rich and poor and 
you know, inequality and things like that in the different churches. It's obvious they're not doing that. So when you, you see something in Arab literature uh, that happens, you say, okay, is this something we ought to copy? Is it is timeless, gnomic or not? Uh, look in the rest of that book. Is it a pattern? Acts would say no. Look for, to confirm that, look for other data that's relevant, whether the churches do in the epistles. They don't do it. And then you say, is this commanded anywhere for anybody? And there's no command. They, this, it's just what they did. Uh, probably because so many of them really didn't have a lot. A few of them did. And there were you know, pragmatic reasons to do that that one time. So we're going to keep that in mind as we go through the book of Acts. Not everything that's described in the book of Acts is necessarily being prescribed. This is something Carla's supposed to do, or Brad's supposed to do, or TBF is supposed to do. It's just described accurately as something somebody did in one situation, right? So just because something's biblical in the sense of it being in the Scripture, being described in Scripture, doesn't necessarily mean it's spiritual or right. I've already talked about Old Testament polygamy. It's described and by the way, let's go back to polygamy. There's a lot of people in the Old Testament that have multiple wives at the same time. Okay? So there's a TV show, Sister Wives. You know, if the TV had been around, one of these guys would have his, had his own TV show, you know? Uh, but you'd say, okay, what, what is the gnomic teaching of Scripture on marriage? Let's, and let's go, let's go back from where David's doing his thing to as early as we can start. Let's, let's go to Genesis, okay? Let's go to the second chapter of Genesis. Uh, you know, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You have Adam and Eve uh, you know Adam and Steve and not Adam, Eve, Ava and Bambi the aerobics instructor. You have you know, one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's the clear statutory teaching and the fact that some people indulged uh, why do people do stuff like that? Because they can we're very flawed, and most of us will try to push the line as far as we can. And there were other reasons for the, as I'm sure some of you know, culturally, uh, a lot of times if you're uh, wanting to make friends with the king of Egypt, you would marry one of his daughters, and he's got probably 25 wives, so he didn't even know all his kids' names, you know. You'd marry one of his daughters, so she would come to Jerusalem, and you might not even consummate the marriage, quite frankly, you might, but... You might not even remember her name if she's your wife. You she's one of 27. But the idea is it makes it less likely he's going to invade you. Things like that. So there were reasons behind that. So that's important as we read the book of Acts. And I think some of our charismatic friends forget that and rip things that are not designed to be normative, aren't taught anywhere else in Scripture, aren't a consistent pattern in Acts. And they say, boom, we all got to be doing this kind of thing. So that's what the book of Acts is. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? Hey, listen, we've we got a slam-dunk case historically. The difference between history and archaeology, do you know the difference, Eric, between history and archaeology? History is when you're reading written documents. Archaeology is when you're looking at physical relics, okay? The archaeologists find a lot of history, but they hand the history, the written documents, to the historians, and they translate and evaluate it. We've got early, widespread uh, credible written history starting with Irenaeus in the middle of the second century, including Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, Eusebius, Jerome, that all in writing in the second, third century say Luke wrote the book of Acts and he also wrote a gospel that we traditionally call the gospel according to Luke. Okay? Now, the thing about that is th there aren't a lot of conspiracy theories about this, but if you know, if you're in the second or third century and you're wanting to m make sure this book is prominently uh, read and used in the church and eventually canonized in Scripture and everybody realizes it's part of the New Testament, uh, if you're pushing this book with an agenda like that and you know better, uh, Brooke, uh, why pick Luke? Nobody knows who he is. I mean, Luke is mentioned just a couple of times, just a barely by Paul at the end of Colossians Paul's lists some of the people he works with, and he mentions Luke, the beloved physician. Boom, over and out. At the end of 2 Timothy, which most of you know is the last letter Paul writes shortly before he's executed, he says, the only one who's here with me right now, Timothy, is Luke. So we know Luke was very faithful under fire. That's all we know about Luke. If you were trying to invent uh, an author to 
promote this book in the second century, you wouldn't pick Luke. Maybe Andrew. Andrew's got a lot more weight than Luke or a lot of other people. So all the historical data supports this and also some interesting internal evidence. Internal evidence is stuff said by the book. The book is anonymous. Luke doesn't take any credit. I mean, what do you do when nobody else is watching? You know, somebody, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, does it make a noise? Yeah, God hears it, right? If you're up here at night and nobody's around, can you do anything you want to? Not really, because God's watching, right? You want to serve and please Him. But uh, Luke didn't feel like he had to put, this is Luke, the guy who worked with Paul, and yes, I have an MD degree writing this book, so you better appreciate it. He doesn't do that. He just starts writing, right? So it's anonymous, but in what's called the we sections, W-E, first person plural pronoun, which appear in chapter 16, second missionary journey, chapter 20, 21, third missionary journey, 27, 28, the voyage to Rome, he'll say, they did this, they did this, they did this. Then they came to Philippi and we did this, we did this, we did this. What does that mean? The writer was with Paul during most of the second, most of the third missionary journey and the voyage to Rome. And so that internal evidence is consistent with the external historical evidence that Luke actually wrote this book. And when you look at the beginning of Acts and the beginning of Luke, you see there, in fact, are twin works, just as the early historians say. This is the prologue to the Gospel of Luke. Then we'll look again at the prologue we read earlier for the book of Acts. Look how these are twins. As he writes his account of the life of Jesus, writing under inspiration, Luke says, uh, as the human author, inasmuch as many such as Matthew and Mark, when Luke's writing, have already written Gospels. And as much as many, and there were non-biblical Gospels or non-biblical fragments. We'll talk about the non-biblical Gospels at some point that you hear about in the Discovery Channel. Uh, why aren't they in the New Testament? Simply late and lawless. All the major non-biblical Gospels people talk about, especially Judas and Thomas, are late 2nd century, not written by the apostles, were never considered to be Scripture by the early church, clearly had a Gnostic agenda. But anyway... Inasmuch as many, and we know that Matthew and uh, uh, Mark have already been written at this point, have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, the disciples of Jesus, just as those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and servants of the word, have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting to me, Dr. Luke as well, having investigated everything carefully. He did a lot of interviewing. He's got a lot of stuff about Mary and Elizabeth nobody else mentions because he probably ran them down and talked to them. Um, having investigated everything from the beginning to write it out for you in logical order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Notice I put most excellent Theophilus in blue. That's blue, right? Yeah, good. Now, Let's go, from, oops, let's go from the prologue of Luke, written by Luke, inspired by the Spirit, to the prologue of Acts we read earlier. The first account I composed, Theophilus, what's the first account? When you're reading Acts, the first account is the Gospel of Luke, right? The first account I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, ascended back to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, to the apostles, he also presented himself alive after suffering, resurrected from the dead by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, parallel wording, parallel addressee. The original addressee of the book is a guy named Theophilus. Now, Sean, you probably know Theos is God. Philos means to be fond of God. Some people want to say, well, that's a pseudonym for somebody he can't mention by name. It's a God lover, or maybe that's a pseudonym for the church. But I don't think so, because you know, today we have uh, a convention. If you're writing a polite correspondence to a government official, even if you don't agree with their politics, for instance, to congressmen, you would put even if you disagree with something he's voted on recently, if you're writing him a letter, even if it's to criticize him, you're going to address our congressman as the Honorable Tom Cole. 
whether he's actually honorable or not. I think Tom Cole probably is. But my point is, some of those guys are yellow dogs up there. I'm just telling you. But, but by convention, uh, as just uh, one of his uh, constituents, you should, by convention, address him as most excellent Tom Cole, or in our case, the honorable Tom Cole. It's pretty clear that the one difference between Luke and Acts is that when Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, probably only six months or a year before he writes Acts, he's giving somebody he knows about but doesn't know real well as a friend and has to approach very formally this information. Most excellent Theophilus is some kind of Roman official. What do we know about the Roman government and the early church? You know, they pretty quickly come at loggerheads, right? And they end up uh, killing Peter and Paul, in fact. So he addresses him as the most honorable Tom Cole. Now, if Tom Cole had been my basketball coach uh, growing up and I knew him and his family friend, you know, in official correspondence, I might still use the convention, but in kind of uh, maybe less formal or maybe a follow-up to a formal one, I would probably just feel free to drop the title, Right. And you see that in the uh, prologue of Acts. You have most excellent Theophilus addressed in Luke. Then you read the same kind of introduction, but it's clearly for a second work. Only this time Theophilus isn't addressed as most excellent Theophilus. He's addressed as Theophilus, which tells you there's been some movement in the, in the quality of the relationship between Luke and Theophilus during the period between the, first, the, the two books. Okay. Now, a real cool thing about the book of Acts is it moves toward, uh, Luke moves toward, and then the second book, Acts, moves away from a very significant series of events. You know what those are? The heart and soul of everything. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Uh, It's been noted that the book of Luke is like an inward spiral that goes to Jerusalem. In fact, chapter 9 through 19 is the last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. None of the disciples want to get anywhere near Jerusalem. It's dangerous. Bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. Although they pretty much convinced themselves Jesus is going to draw swords and take over the government. But, uh, you know, Luke is all about a spiral into Jerusalem. And then the purpose of God is for the saving death, resurrection, ascension to take place in and just outside of Jerusalem. Then the book of Acts starts right there, Dale, at the ascension. But it's not a spiral in, it's a spiral out of Jerusalem and it ends up in the city of Rome, which is the secular capital of the Western world. So you go from the epicenter of the purpose of God in Jerusalem to the epicenter of uh, the beast uh, at at that time, the human government, um, the, um, the city of Rome. And so the Gospel of Luke ends where the book of Acts starts with the SAS, what does that stand for? Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice of Christ, LBSR, Literal Bodily Supernatural Resurrection. Uh, A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can. And then we're going to throw another acronym. The uh, LBSA is, uh, boy, it sounds like another acronym I hear thrown around a lot, which we'll move on by. Uh, Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The Literal Bodily Supernatural Ascension. The ascension takes place 40 days after the resurrection. We know that because Acts 1 just told us, okay? So uh, one cool thing about the love and respect thing was he, he presents the gospel almost exactly the way I do, the right way, you know? So it's, it's, he believes in rewards and everything, you know? It's amazing, you know? So that was a, a nice bonus because usually these guys are way off somewhere else, but you appreciate the marriage stuff. So, yeah, um, it's called, the, it's called the chicken technique, folks. It's the drumstick technique. And you need to use this on all Bible teachers, especially me. If, Carla, if I gave Carla Buchanan a big, plump drumstick, as she ate it, she would not be offended nor surprised that there was a bone in the middle. Would she? She wouldn't be surprised, would she, Sean? She's, she's smart. She's, she's eaten drumsticks before. What would she do? She would eat the meat. What would she do with the bone? Put it on the plate, right? you got to do that with every human Bible teacher, especially me, because I'm still rough around the edges, okay? But, yeah, it's, it's really neat to realize that Luke does this, boom, to that, and then Acts starts with that and ends up with the gospel at the heart of the secular power base. And it, 
You see in the story of Acts how the gospel transcends colors, countries, cultures, and uh, is the best thing out there. Now look at Acts 1.8. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, uh, this is really the key to the book. Uh, this is no mistake that Luke mentions what Jesus says to the apostles just before the, the ascension uh, in, in the way he does in verse 8 because he then structures his story to show you how that gets fulfilled. And it's really an interesting thing that the apostles are thinking, okay, now we're going to take over the government, right? <laughs> right before he ascends. Now we're going to take over, right? And he says, it's not for you to know the exact timing on, on the end times. I am going to take over, but not right now. You just kind of bloom where you're planted. But here's what's going to happen, verse 8. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That takes place 10 days later, described in Acts 2. And as Spirit-filled believers, New Testament believers, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, the city where we are now, or just outside of it on Mount of Olives, and then in the whole region, Judea, around Jerusalem, and even into Samaria, which is a totally cultural, mind-blowing thing for Jewish minds, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. So Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, ending up in Rome. And in fact, he structures his book. This is what happens. He's not making it up, but he's showing you how what Jesus said there, in fact, happens in time. And we'll work through the book with that geographical progression in mind. So what is the book of Acts? Do I have to start over? <laughs> I can't, but... Yeah, it's one of the 27 books. It's an inspired book, right? Desired, designed for that purpose, to promote the program of God. Um, the other trick question, who wrote the book of Acts? Nice. Now, question number three. Why was the book written uh, in the first place? Well, uh, watch this. Um, Bible.org, great website. Daniel Wallace knows literally, this is not hyperbole, this guy knows more about the 5,000-plus Greek manuscripts in the New Testament than anybody in the world who's alive right now. That is a, just a fact. And he teaches at Dallas Seminary. And they go over the world. They're digitizing all these manuscripts. He's in charge of a, progr pro uh, a uh, program. Uh, program. I can't think of the right word. Uh, doing that. But Daniel Wallace points out that the immediate pragmatic purpose for the book of Acts was to inform Theophilus, a government official of the Roman government, about key facts about the early church in general and Paul specifically about the legitimacy of Christianity and the ministry of Paul so that Theophilus can testify at Paul's hearing. Okay, Because what are the opponents of Paul and Christianity going to say to Nero? This guy's dangerous. This guy's a terrorist. He's anti-government. Now Jesus said, render unto Caesar what Caesar's under God, what's God, right? So the rule is always obey human government until or unless it's a direct sin to obey human government. And at this point it wasn't. And so that's the immediate cause uh, of the book, the, why he's writing the book. But beyond that and consistent with that pragmatic cause, You've got edificatory, very difficult to say, apologetic, and evangelistic reasons. Edification means to build up. The book's written to instruct and build up believers in their faith in every generation about how the purpose and the plan of God was at work in the first generation church despite the fact that a lot of those people were dying for this thing. James gets whacked in Acts 12, okay? Stephen gets stoned in chapter 8. Stoned. They bury up to your head and throw rocks at you till you're dead. You know, that's a horrible way to go. And this is one of the greatest people in the world. And yet, that doesn't stop the program of God. God's got such an amazing program. Even that fits in. That wart fits in. And when we see the whole thing from a distance of heaven, it'll, it'll make sense. But he's just saying God is working in this and the ups and downs don't doubt it. More specifically, I think his book is validating the fact that the risen, ascended Christ, who's not walking around on the earth anymore, is at work fulfilling his promise to irresistibly build his church. Watch this. Through faithful, though flawed, human raw material, including Peter, Paul, and Mary. Now, if you're my age, Peter, Paul, and Mary 
illicit memories of a folk rock group as opposed to biblical heroes. But uh, I'm talking about a different Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Dorcas. And what you see in the book of Acts, you've got women and men. You've got poor and rich. You've got slave and free. You've got Gentile and Jew contributing in significant ways to the New Testament church under the providence and purposes of God. It's an exciting story when you read it that way. So that's edification. Apologetics. We're not apologizing for anything, but apologetics goes back to a term that means to defend. The book was written at one level to answer false charges against Christ and Christianity by both secular Roman and certain religious opponents. Quote from Brian Rosser, commentary, the book of Acts is not merely concerned to draw a link between the time of Jesus and the time of the early church, as is commonly noted, but also between the time of Israel, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the time of Jesus and the New Testament church. Acts insists that the God who was at work in the history of his ancient people, Israel, to bring Messiah to incarnation and his crucifixion and resurrection, is the same God who's at work in the church, even though the Messiah has returned to heaven. But he's coming back, right? I will build my church. And then evangelistic, look at chapter 10, verse 39. The book was written to declare the gospel of Christ, the love of God in Christ through the power of the gospel over all human limitations and human prejudice, including color, country, and culture. Uh, and according to the Bible, I always love this quote from my favorite theologian, one of my favorite, Carl Perkins, the 50 rocker, 1950s rocker. According to the Bible, there's only one race, human race, and as Carl said, if you don't start moving, you're going to finish in last place. So I, was, I just thought that was a cool quote. Not funny or anything like that. I'm not saying it's funny. I'm just saying it's, I just thought it was cool. Look at chapter 10. Man, I love this one. Uh, chapter 10, 39. This is, Paul, uh, this is Peter in Caesarea. Homer, Caesarea, real place? Beautiful place on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, preaching concertedly to Gentiles, and boy, he's going to get in trouble in the next chapter with the uptight uh, cootie theory of spirituality people that are still uh, in uh, the early church in Jerusalem. Can you believe that? But look what he says, Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, says to Cornelius. We are witnesses of all the things he, Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews generally and in Jerusalem specifically, but they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And yet God raised him up on the third day. I mean, literal bodily supernatural resurrection. And granted that he become visible, not to everybody, everywhere, but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is to us. And we ate and drank with him. Many convincing proofs, remember? After he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, white, black, men and women, slave free, Gentile Jew, and solemnly testify that this, he is the one who's been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him, of Jesus Christ, all the Old Testament prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who what? Believes. Everyone who believes in what? In him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel, folks. Look at chapter 13. Let's go from Peter to Paul. Let's go to the first missionary journey. Let's go to the interior of modern Turkey, Pisidian Antioch. We're in a synagogue. Look at chapter 13, verse 38. This is the apostle Paul preaching uh, and emphasizing that Jesus connects all the dots that the Old Testament Messiah was supposed to fulfill and supposed to uh, connect. And so he gets to his bottom line in Acts 13, verse 38. Therefore, in light of Jesus as the clear fulfillment of Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who what? Believes. We're saying by faith, not by works? Yeah. Is freed from all things from which you could not be freed by trying to be really good under the Old Testament law. The law wasn't designed to save. It wasn't a ladder. Sonia, the ladder, the law wasn't a ladder we could use to climb to God, was it? It was a what? Mirror that showed us we all needed a Savior because we're, we're dirty. Look at chapter 17. 
it's neat because you, you see the apostles preaching the gospel here, man. It's always uh, Jesus did the work, believe, he'll change it from the inside out, and then trust and obey, and then we want to f- see fruit. But they never front load the gospel with signing cards and making promises and doing all this stuff that we like, all the hoops we want people to jump through. Those hoops ought to be things that are the result of salvation that you're doing for the right reasons. Chapter 17, second missionary journey when Thessalonica, we're again in the synagogue there just for some context, uh, second missionary journey. Then when they had traveled from Philippi through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went there first because that made sense because they had the Old Testament and we could start and show you that Jesus was the Messiah based in the Old Testament. Then we'll tell the Gentiles about it. And for three straight Sabbaths, they let him expound from the scriptures what he was saying about Jesus. Verse 3, he was explaining and giving evidence from the Old Testament, it's called apologetics, defending the faith, explaining the faith, that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and die and then rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Boom. So the book was written uh, to equip Theophilus to testify on Paul's behalf, but much more than that, it's designed for the edification of every generation of believers for apologetic and evangelistic reasons. Fourth question, when was the book written? This is, this is a slam dunk, and it's one of those things that I think we need to emphasize more, both internal stuff that the book says and external historical evidence allows us, in my humble opinion, to precisely date the writing of the book of Acts to late spring, early summer, right at the very end of Paul's two years of statute of limitations where he's waiting for his hearing, and they waited for the last minute to actually do the hearing, and Luke writes this thing right before the hearing is going to come up, and in fact, Luke uh, is successful. Paul does get released for another, and he's able to function for another five years. Now, on your notes there, I've actually uh, written the last two verses of the last chapter to kind of see where the book ends. It's very important to notice this so we can kind of put it in its context. But the last two verses of the book in chapter 28, verses 30-31, Luke says, Paul, waiting for this uh, hearing before his appeal before the Caesar as a Roman citizen, he had this unique privilege to do this. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. He's got to pay for his room and board while he's under house arrest. And welcomed all who came to him. He's able to have visitors. He's able to write books of the Bible. All kinds of stuff. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness without hindrance. Now, here's the thing. I'm saying late spring, early summer, 62. Not everybody holds that. The more conventional kind of dating for Luke, they want to, for Acts, they want to date it as as late as they possibly can. They want to get as far away from the events as possible. And so even the radical uh, skeptics now are saying in the 80s, sometimes in the eight, sometime in the 80s AD. Well, in response to that, let me quote Daniel Wallace again. He says, the fact that Acts end where it does, where does it end? With Paul toward the end of his two years waiting to see what's going to happen with his legal case, but the book not telling you what happens with his legal case. You know what that means, almost certainly? The legal case wasn't finished when Luke finishes this. He's I think he's trying to get the last bits out to give to Theophilus because I, I think he's, he's going to go up you know, for his hearing like next week. So you've got to have this. Read through this so you'll be ready, Theophilus, to stand up for the truth here. So, uh, yeah, Dan- Daniel Wallace, if I can find that quote I was reading you again, yeah, says the fact that Acts ends where it does without the, the tension being resolved. Luke's, um, uh, Paul's just waiting, and he's at the end of his two-year uh, period of waiting. Uh, is a great embarrassment to those who date it in the 80s, which is kind of the more conventional scheme. Well-known British and non-evangelical Christian scholar J.A.T. Robinson in his major work on dating the New Testament argues strongly for the book of Acts being written in 62. And that was about 20 years ago he wrote that book. Uh, a, a scholar, a German scholar, von Harnack, who was a very influential early 20th century uh, scholar, held to the later date until he specifically wrote a book called The Date of Acts and did new research, and he totally changed his opinion, and he dated it in 62. Again, okay, Steve, that's significant. You're getting people from a different spectrum. J.T. Robinson is a far lefty, you know, as far as his version of Christianity. 
But von Harnack said, quote, uh, the last eight chapters of Acts, in the last eight chapters of Acts, Luke keeps his readers intensely interested, that is, he in minute detail describes the progress of the, the trials of Paul before Agrippa and Festus, and then his appeal, and then the trip to Rome, and waiting to talk to Nero, or whoever Nero sends to represent him that day, if he's too drunk to go to this thing, which he often was too drunk to do it. Uh, simply that he may in the end completely dis disappoint them in the sense that they learn nothing about the final result of Paul's trials in the book itself. It just stops there. Uh, his point was that seems impossible if the author was writing later when it was already public knowledge what happened. And plus she'd want to just say, hey, you know what? The Alphas went forward, hit a home run, and Paul got released, and good things actually happened before they uh, caught him again and killed him, you know, which is what happens, right? Um, the abrupt ending of the book with Paul's status still waiting uh, to be resolved and it's not strongly argues that it was written before the, the end of uh, and that, that, that hearing, before that hearing took place, which would have been in 62. Now there's also other stuff historically that would have been pretty relevant to the early church that happens just after 62 that is not mentioned in the book, which again argues he's writing before these things happen. Nero didn't grow fangs until 64. Nero didn't do anything to hurt the church until 64. And then he grew fangs, and then he got really bad and nasty and was crucifying people all over the city, etc. Uh, you'd think Luke would have mentioned that if he'd written after that fact. Uh, Paul was executed by Nero in late 67, early 68. That's not mentioned. We've still got him waiting for his appeal to come up. And the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple happened in 70. If that had happened, Luke would have a lot of reasons to mention that. But he doesn't. So, and then that's kind of argument from silence, but I think it's a strong argument from silence. All right. What's the book of Acts? I'm afraid to ask you that. The book of Acts is part of the New Testament. Corey is I know you know. It's an inspired book. It's indispensable. And it's part of your New Testament for that reason. Who wrote it? We all know Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, right, Lindley, in the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. Why was it written? Well, to help Theophilus, but for edification, apologetic, and evangelistic reasons. And uh, when was it written? I'm going to argue 62, at the very end of his two-year uh, waiting period in Rome. And now, one final question, how are we going to get a good grip on this many, this many chapters? But we're going to use this acronym. I'm not going to read it to you now. But as we go through the book, we'll use a geographical approach because that's the way it's structured. But we're going to use this convention just to help us. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. It's kind of just an acronym to remember. And as we go through the details, I think it'll be pretty easy to remember as we go along. So uh, you don't have to remember 28 things. You only have to remember eight things, eight words. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. What's going to happen in chapter 1? Jesus ascends, okay? What happens in chapter 2, day of Pentecost, the establishment of the New Testament church, and we'll go like that, okay? So take this to heart. Uh, you know, we've seen what the book is, who wrote it, and he's the human author. You know, he's superintended by the divine author, the Holy Spirit, why it was written, when it was written. My, my idea, my prayer, my hope is that behind the scenes information like this will just increase our appreciation for what we have here and uh, that we realize this is an essential part of the Word of God written, it's inspired, it's been preserved. It's going to tell us some really cool stuff we need to know that can really motivate and equip us to live out our mission now. Uh, now, if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is our invitation. We're not going to ask you to walk the aisle or sign things or join things, but the Bible preaches the uh, teaches this gospel that the apostles preach all over the Roman world that even though all of us have sinned and we can't fix it, uh, we're guilty before God and we're unable to save ourselves, that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ who knew no sin, committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what happens is this, is, this is God, he's perfect, and this is me, and here's my sin. You know, we, we tell, it was, this technically this is neutral, but you know, this is going to represent sin. 
this is sin. This is my body. You know, this is my blood. This is sin, okay? And sin gets between me and God. It gets between us and God. But the other world religion says, kind of bury your sin and try to kind of build a mound up and get as close to God as possible. What God does is come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, live a perfect righteous life, and through and by his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, all of my sins were laid on him and judged. Everything necessary to get Brad McCoy to heaven, and that's a lot. All the sins Brad McCoy has committed or ever will commit, Jesus Christ died and paid for on the cross. At the end of that at payment, he says, Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. And he died, and we hope it's all true. No, what happens three days later? A dead Savior ain't going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. And he didn't, it wasn't a deal where one of the apostles thought they saw somebody in a fog and it looked like Jesus, maybe. It was he's appearing to them individually, collectively. They're touching him. He's eating stuff. And he didn't gain any weight. You know, in the resurrected state, you don't gain any weight. You can eat all you want to and no weight gain. So that's a good thing. Uh, but his literal resurrection validates the saving power of his death and how to receive it. According to the book of Acts, everyone who believes in him. And saving faith is active, receptive trust that Jesus was my Savior, died for my sins, rose again. It's not just historical belief in raw facts. It's full consent of the will. Uh, and right where you sit, you can receive Christ. There aren't any altar calls in Acts. These guys just proclaim the gospel and say, you need to believe it. Because the idea is if you believe it, he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-free card. He changes you from the inside out, and that begins to express itself. And you'll probably tell people, and plus probably people will be able to tell there's a difference, right? And then you do all these other wonderful things like plug in a church, etc., which we need to do as believers. But that's our invitation. If you've not received the Lord Jesus, today can be the, the day of salvation. Uh, I'd certainly be glad to talk to you about that if you want to anytime. I'm available 24-7. It's 1-800-BRAD. It works every country in the world except North Korea. So uh, you know, I'll be glad to talk to you. But uh, that's our bottom line. We don't have a public invitation, but we do share the gospel. And we want you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for speaking to us and not stuttering in your word. And I pray that we'd really be excited uh, about our study of this book and that you'd use it in significant ways to make our categories your categories, our priorities your priorities, and give us uh, an excitement to live out the faith, even in uh, the sufferings of life, even in the persecutions and the, the scorning and the mocking that uh, high school seniors will get if they don't do certain things on prom night. Help us be willing to take those kind of hits for the one who loved us, saved us, and is going to uh, is preparing a place for us in heaven. We thank you for each one who's here. Pray a blessing of your word by the power of your spirit on each one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.